Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done roughly 625 of them now. And if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. Uh, this program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's a page explaining some alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Nipun Mehta. Nipun is the founder of Service Space, a global community at the intersection of technology, volunteerism, and gift economy. Most recently, Service Space's pandemic response has showcased the unique beauty of its global ecosystem. Nipun has catalyzed the global social movement of community builders grounded in their localities and rooted in practices for cultivating love, nonviolence, selfless service, and compassion. The ecosystem has reached millions, attracted thousands of volunteers, and mushroomed into numerous community-based service projects, as well as inspiring content portals. Service space harnesses the collective power of networks and our deeper interconnectedness to create a distributed social movement founded on small, local, individual acts of kindness, generosity, and service that ignite shifts in individual and collective consciousness. Nipun was honored as an unsung hero of compassion by the Dalai Lama not long before U.S. President Barack Obama appointed him to a council for addressing poverty and inequality in the U.S. Yet the core of what strikes anyone who meets him is the way his life is an attempt to bring smiles in the world and silence in the heart. I want to live simply, love purely, and give fearlessly. That's me as a quote from him. In his mid-twenties, Nipun quit his job to become a full-time volunteer. One of his most formative experiences was a walking pilgrimage across India with his wife of six months, who must have been a trooper, whose profound lessons also became the subject of his widely read address at the University of Pennsylvania commencement. Over the last 20 years, he has addressed thousands of gatherings around the world, speaking next to wide-ranging leaders from Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak to author Elizabeth Gilbert to civil rights legend John Lewis. Germany's Oom magazine named Nipun top 100 most inspiring people of 2020. I did forget earlier to mention that those watching the live stream, if you have a question that you'd like to ask during the interview, go to the upcoming interviews, future interviews menu on BatGap, and there you'll see a, a drop-down menu with a link to a page where you can ask your question. So thanks, Nipun. Good to see you. Good to meet you. We've met previously briefly, but now we're really going to get into it. Yeah. Thank you, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. And thanks for having done 600 plus interviews, uh, especially around spiritual journeys. Well, I kind of feel the way you probably do, which is I don't need thanks. I mean, I'm the prime beneficiary of doing this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's true. And you're from uh, Gujarat originally, aren't you? I am. Yeah. Do you know the state? Well, my wife taught Transcendental Meditation in Ahmedabad in the early 80s for, I don't know, four or five months or something like that. And I've never been to Gujarat. I was just in the New Delhi area a couple of times, but I know it because of her having been there. Is that where you're from, Ahmedabad? Or? Yeah. In fact, that's the city I was born in. 
cool. That was, I think, yeah, 1981 or something like that. I went back and forth about whether to read your whole bio out because you're not the type to toot your own horn by any means, but I was afraid that if I didn't read it, some of these things might not be mentioned. But you'll have an opportunity to embellish upon everything you're doing and have been doing as we go along. I know you don't like to talk about yourself a little bit, but it's good to give people a sense of your background and things so they know who it is that's telling them all these things. I thought an interesting place to start might be when you were, what, about 11 years old and you and your family were flying to India from San Francisco and you changed planes in Tokyo and you ended up sitting next to an elderly Japanese gentleman who turned out to be very interesting and have sort of interesting perceptual abilities. Could you tell us that story? Oh, that's great. Yeah. It's been a while since I reflected on that. That was actually a pretty formative time because you imagine I wasn't 11, maybe a little bit older, but I was in my teens. And here we were, we had immigrated, all four of us, my parents, my brother and I to the US. And this was our first trip back. And we had this layover in Japan and at the airport. I think my mom saw this Japanese man in a beard, just very loving and compassionate. And there were a bunch of people around him and just kind of noticed him, didn't make much of it. And and then we get our seats and you know, there's three seats. And so me and my brother were together and the third seat was open and my parents were behind and you know their aisle seat was open as well. And this guy ends up sitting right next to us, next to my brother and I. And uh, he had a little cello that he was carrying And he goes in and he's about to put his cello up in the overhead bin. And he just looks at my brother and I and like, I don't know what it seemed like a very long time, but probably was about 30 seconds. He's just like looking at us and just smiling. You know, as a teenager, you're kind of like, okay, you know, for the first 10 seconds, it's kind of fun. And it's it's sweet, (laughs) right? After a while, it's like, Oh, you know, and I, you know, there's this kind of awkwardness to it. And so I kind of looked at him. I'm like, uh, can I help you with that? Putting that up. And he's like, oh, no, no, it's okay. And then he put it up. Yeah. I mean, over the next uh, eight hours or so, I think he just basically blew our minds. He knew things. I mean, this was a complete stranger. right? And he knew so many things about us that uh, we were like, how exactly do you know this? What kind of Um, things? he could just see a lot. And he was a healer. He was a mystic. He had cured himself of cancer in his earlier years. He could go on without eating food for a long time, but most of all, he was just very radiant and compassionate. And he just knew about our history and about our lives. It was just a kind of a mind-blowing experience at that age. You're just like, it's almost like it's a superpower. Like you're looking at it, you're like, oh my God, how are you accessing all this information? And he was not playing any games. You know, he was like, oh, it's right here. You just have to open your eyes to see it. And we're like, right where? And so he started telling us about auras and all these things. And I was like, okay, so are you saying there's more to people than just their faces? And he was like, yeah. And then, you know, me and my brother, there happened to be a monk actually on the plane. And so we were, as kids, we were asking him very childlike questions. We were like, so is my aura bigger than that guy's? And like, what about that guy? And he was playing with us. He was going along with it. It was one of those things where I think what drew us also was it wasn't just his radiance, but it was his compassion. And there's a distinction there. And, and he was a very kind man. And what was actually very interesting is that we lost touch. We had no way to contact him. 
we looked him up online. There was a little photo, but we just didn't have any way to contact him. This is a true story, Rick. This is actually what happened. It was just amazing. We had so much gratitude. So like maybe two decades later, I don't know, maybe a little less than two decades, maybe 17 years or something, I got invited. I'd never been to Japan and I was invited. One of my friends was hosting a bunch of events there. And she says, oh, since you're coming here, do you know anybody from Japan? And I'm like, well, not really, but there was this one guy I met, you know, it's, it's like people do this to me all the time. They were like, oh, you're Indian. Do you know this one guy that works at this company? And I'm like, uh, no, there's like, you know, thousands of them. And so I kind of did the same thing. I'm like, oh yeah, there is this one guy, but not really. I don't know anybody. And she says, who is this guy? And I said, his name is Shin. Here's a photo. And she happened to be at a movie screening two days later. And right behind her was this guy who looked a little bit like the photo I had sent. And she goes up to him and she says, are you Shin? And he says, why, yes, I am. He says, do you remember you met these two Indian kids on a plane? And she says, oh, yes, I remember very clearly. And he says, well, the older one happens to be visiting the country in a couple of days. He would love to see you. And I just wanted to say thanks. And so improbably, we actually met in that way again, many years later. And now we're in touch. Oh, so he's still uh, alive. He's still alive. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a great story. Yeah. He healed my mom's knee too. He could do all these things. And, and so mm -hmm. he, uh, we, were just, we were just testing him out. You know, we were like, so do you know about the future? Like what's going to happen? And, you know, and he says, oh yeah, well, you can look at patterns, but anyone who tells you that this is predictably going to happen, don't trust them because huh. you can't predictably say it, but there are certain patterns and people don't usually have the capacities to step out of those patterns. So it's a slow transformation, but you can change all of that. Cool. So that was a long time ago. How old are you now? Like early 40s or something? I am. Yes, indeed. Obviously, I hinted at a lot of things when I read your bio. So let's move along. I guess you could say in a way that, that meeting that Japanese guy, or maybe not, correct me if I'm wrong, but that, that might have been one of your first inklings that there were deeper dimensions to life that could be perceived if one had the ability to do so, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we all have experiences growing up where there's sort of transcendent moment. I remember when I was five and my mom's side of the family was big into chanting and I didn't know how to define it, but I kind of went into a state of some absorption and just chanting the word Om, you know, and uh, that kind of thing. But you don't know how to process it. You don't have a framework around it. Yeah. And so as you get a little older, you're like, oh. But you grew up in India and you probably heard or read the Upanishads and the Gita and all that stuff. So you, you knew about enlightenment and higher states of consciousness and that kind of thing. Yeah. 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 And of course, these days, I'm, I'm told that a lot of young Indians dismiss all that as antiquated or archaic. And they're interested in the flashy Western stuff, you know, the science and the technology and the money and all that. Is that a true characterization or... Uh, yeah, definitely. The sort of new dream that people have. I don't think it's intrinsic to us, but I think that's the trend of society that, it, you know, it's outside, outside. It's like this, this, and then this. And then it's like an endless acquisition mentality, which never yeah. satisfies. 
but we're not told that, you know, that disclaimer, we, we don't read that. So we keep trying, we keep trying. And then eventually, I think all roads will probably lead to this. Yeah, that's a good point. By this, of course, you mean that the inner fulfillment that one finds when one turns one's attention to the inner life, a spiritual development. But you did, obviously, your family itself. I was just reading last night that verse in the Gita where Krishna tells Arjuna that Arjuna asks, well, what'll happen if someone is on the spiritual path, but they don't make it and they die? Do they not perish like a broken cloud? And, and Krishna says, no, they'll spend countless years in the worlds of the illustrious, and then they'll be reborn in a good family, possibly even a family of yogis. Although that sort of birth is harder to attain on earth, he says. But then, like your brother, you're saying like he wanted to shave his head and go off to the Himalayas when he was three years old. So it sounds like you got born into a good family. <laughs> I absolutely did. I think I, I was pretty lucky. It's a true story. My brother wanted to, that Himalayas was more me, but I think my brother definitely wanted to shave his head all the time. And, and they initially, they were like, what's wrong with him? You know, and then they took him to see a big saint uh, in that town my grandma did. Mm-hmm. And the saint's like, oh, you don't need to worry about him. <laughs> you should be worried about your own cultivation kind of thing. And And that's always been... Yeah, my brother is a great inspiration for me. And my parents have always been also very supportive of the spiritual journey. So I'm kind of teasing a little bit of biographical information out of you as we go along. Would it be a leap to now talk about your relationship with your wife and how you met her and and how things unfolded there? Not a leap. I mean, I think my wife and my brother are probably the two most sort of foundational pillars for me, spiritually speaking. My wife and I, we met a long time ago when I was in my teens, actually, late teens. And it's been remarkable. I've led a kind of uncommon life and uh, she's been right there. She's been, in fact, encouraging and oftentimes leading. And I'm sort of following her intuition. And it's been a remarkable gift. I think one of the greatest gifts in my life, you know, she was there when we started service space. She was there. I knew her very intimately when I quit my job in 2005, we went on a walking pilgrimage together. And so there's always these figures. I always find it very interesting, right? Like if we look at our lives, there's people with whom you have affinities and they just kind of tend to show up at very formative moments in your lives. And I think if, you know, at the core affinity perhaps might be our parents. And then in my case, my brother and my wife have been two of those formative pillars. And I can never like gratitude, like you were saying, you can't say thank you for these things. You can't pay back, you know, you just have to pay forward. And so for all that I've received, I've I've tried to pay forward. Yeah. You mentioned that you had known your wife for quite a while and you were sort of best friends or something. And then one day the two of you were walking down the street and at the same time, you both said, we should get married today. Yeah. And you'd been together for, I don't know, a long time. I mean, known each other as good yeah. buddies. She was from a Sikh family. And then you had to go ask permission from her grandfather, right? Yeah. Good uh, story. Rick, you've, you've really done your research. I've done right? my homework, seven or eight hours of listening to Nippon this week. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We both kind of had a monastic orientation, I think, We wanted to serve the world. I think that's what brought us together. We wanted to become better human beings, you know, be spiritual. And so those were the two, always the two big pillars for us. And when uh, when we met each other, it wasn't clear to us that uh, binding yourself in a uh, a marital context is necessarily the thing to do. 
and is our calling. I mean, it's a beautiful thing, but it just wasn't clear to us that that's where we should be headed. And then one fine day, it was true. We just kind of felt that call and it was very rare. After 10 years of knowing each other, you know, you've kind of had all these conversations, but we were like, yeah. And somehow we felt like that was the day and no one at that time in their family, she's from a Sikh family, had married outside of their tradition. In other words, had married a Hindu, which you are. Yeah. Well, the reason I found that story interesting is that we have a very similar story. We met and uh, then we sort of had each other in our radar, but it wasn't until like 12 years later that we also said, all right, we should get married. And we were both on an actual monastic program, the two of us which also involved a lot of traveling around the world and doing projects and stuff, but it was kind of a monastic program. I can kind of relate to your story. <laughs> totally, totally. Yeah. And it, it was it was amazing. I mean, her grandfather, who was a very big influence for her and one of the strictest guys, like no one in the family is even, everyone's afraid to go to him and talk to him about the movies or anything. The last decade of his life, I think, 90% of his waking hours were just scripture. And most people perceived him to be very fundamentalist in his tradition. But that was just an external perception because the first time we met in a very improbable settings where Guri was going to go ask, seek his blessings, we didn't even speak a common language. We kind of had Hindi as a in-between sort of, you know, that you have a few common words between Hindi and Punjabi. And he looked at me and he says, you know, you're on the right path. Keep doing what you're doing. What were you doing? Exactly. That was my question to him. What was it? What am I doing exactly? (laughs) I mean, I think serving. So even then you were doing the service thing. Yeah, I think it was clear to me at 17 was sort of a big turning point. I think I was always interested in that, but there was a dominant paradigm story in my head and there was this inner seeking. I was always into philosophy. I was always like reading sacred texts. I went to college at UC Berkeley and they have like this old part of the library where they have some really amazing ancient texts. So I would like be reading something about physics on one side and then I'm like, I'm tired, I need a break. And then I would go to that section and I would read. Like that was what always interested me. But I think at 17, somehow it was a turning point for me where what was below the radar became more prominent and what was prominent sort of became secondary. Did you have a number of years where... You sort of did the tech thing and you worked at Sun Microsystems and perhaps some other things in that vein. But did you feel like maybe you were selling out a little bit or something because this wasn't the highest ideal that you knew existed? I wasn't sure if I was selling out per se. I didn't feel like I was even, I even had that choice, but I just felt like there was something deeper. There was a deeper calling that my job in Silicon Valley at the time, I came out of college with like the dot-com boom, right? And all my peers were doing these startups and they were talking about crazy amounts of money and the kind of craziness that was very materialistic craziness. And I just felt like, you know, there was this one billboard I remember. It was a startup at the time called E-Toys. And it says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, Death has always been at the forefront of my consciousness. And so I would always be thinking about that. And I would always be then contemplating on life as a result and, you know, not taking life for granted. And I'd always be like, you know, what is the calling? 
And I remember at the time, even in my teen years, actually, one of the things at 17 I did was I said, I want to volunteer. I want to go to a place where no one else wants to volunteer and serve. And I volunteered at a hospice to be with dying patients. And they told me, you're 17. You can't come right now because you need to be at least 18. And I went back at 18 and they said, are you sure you want to be with people who are dying? Those kinds of things actually always drove me. Did you ever meet Mother Teresa? I never met Mother Teresa. I know people who have, and mm -hmm. my wife spent time at her orphanages, but I haven't met her yeah. personally. I interviewed Lynn Twist a few months ago, who spent quite a bit of time with Mother Teresa and who also is very much in the giving mode. You know, Lynn? Oh, yeah, very well. This point you just made about death is interesting. He who dies with the most toys still dies. And of course, that's the alternative to he who dies with the most toys wins, which is absurd because you can't take the toys with you. I saw a cartoon where it had a tombstone and it, and it said, I'll be back. Don't touch my stuff. <laughs> that's right. All right. There's another cartoon which had this guy standing outside a bank and, and the sign on the bank says, first reincarnation bank. You can't take it with you, so leave it with us until you return. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a pretty important. I, if we just hold that idea that, man, this is impermanent, then all of a sudden that brings everything into question. I, at least it does for me, and it always has, and it never fails to do the trick. Even now, we can ask ourselves, if this is the last conversation that I'm having or that you're having, how would you actually show up for this? And just holding that question arrests this false sense of continuity that our ego is baked into, that this exists, and now this is my plan for tomorrow, and this is how I'm going to continue it. And so I think anything that helps you arrest this sense of false continuity, I think is a noble thing, worthwhile thing to do. And, yeah. and for me, my whole context started pointing me in that direction. And they were like, what's more important? Like, it's not this permanency or this mirage of permanency. It's actually the values that guide the impermanency. And those for me, first and foremost, were was compassion as an organizing principle of that whole field. I suppose some people would think it morbid or depressing to contemplate death and the impermanency and, you know, how short life is. But we can look at it two ways. If there's nothing after we die, then it's probably a good idea to be compassionate and to help people and all, you know, and have as, as much of an impact as possible while we're alive. And if there is something after we die, which I think you and I probably believe that, you know, life goes on in some form and perhaps there's reincarnation or whatever, then again, it's valuable to be compassionate and to help people. And so, I mean, so however you slice it, it's beneficial to have that orientation. Yeah, I would go even one step further in the sense that, hey, if this is my last moment, I might as well make a difference, make an impact. To me, over time, even all of that has been like, how do I know if something actually makes an impact? And if that is the right kind of impact, if that is a helpful kind of impact. And so if you can't know that, then why are you even motivated by that? And I think for me, what I have discovered, 
I think it's just a more natural expression of compassion. I don't think you discover, I don't think you could build a kind of foundation on top of compassion. I think you just let compassion guide you. And when it's like that, then it's less of you doing something and it's more of you being guided through this gravity of compassion. Like that just becomes the force with which you act in the world and you release all agendas and, and including outcomes, including the sense of having the significance of like, hey, I did this. And so I mattered in the history of humanity. And I think when you do that, paradoxically, you end up doing so much more that is relevant to the ecosystem of consciousness. Yeah. You know, one thing I ponder and was pondering when I was listening to your various talks is that, you know, some people seem to be naturally endowed with a compassionate, kind, generous nature and other people not. And whether it's due to their level of evolution or their upbringing and all, I I can't really say. Some people might say, well, it's easy for you to say uh, because you just seem to be a good guy. You know, you're compassionate, you're generous. That's the way you are. But, you know, so-and-so over there seems to be kind of a greedy, you know, narcissist. And um, how are you going to change him? (laughs) Fortunately, I don't think uh, virtue is a binary process, right? So in the sense that there are so many different kinds of virtues and we all have our own calling around those different spectrums. So you may be less compassionate, but you may be much more still. You may not have stillness, but maybe you have an incredible uh, work ethic. There's so many different, uh, what the Buddha might call paramis, um, and we have them all in different proportions, and that's what makes us unique. And so it's, it's not that, oh, I'm compassionate and you're not. It's that, oh, I feel like I have this vow of compassion that motivates me, that motivates my existence, that motivates my life. And I think we all owe it to ourselves to find those vows in ourselves. And even if that vow is to awaken and to end all vows, that could be just as good. Or in fact, that's a pretty noble thing to do. So I don't think it's a, I'm compassionate and you're not, and the whole world needs to be compassionate kind of an approach. I think it's more of, there's so many virtues and align with your deepest calling and do it for the sake of your inner transformation. Do it with humility. Do it with a deep surrender to the field of grace and allow that to guide your path. And that is probably more intelligent. The guidance of that path is going to have much more intelligence than the guidance of your ego. At least that has been my experience to surrender to that flow, which in my case has been the flow of compassionate service. What I think I hear you saying, and you can tell me whether you agree with this or not, is that everybody, regardless of their current condition, has they have some wiggle room in terms of their free will and, and opportunities will present themselves in which they can do something helpful or compassionate or kind or harden their hearts a little bit and miss the opportunities. And if you choose rightly, then that moves you in the direction of greater capacity to be that way. Yeah, I think that's right. And if if you were to nuance it a little further, essentially what happens when I am doing a small act of kindness? Let's say I open the door for you, Rick. And in the larger scheme of things, it's like, okay, what has changed? And we tend to look at the impact as an external ripple effect that, oh, I, I did this for Rick and then this what happened and then this is what happened and this is how significant it was. And so my little act matters. That's one way to look at why is that small act matters. Another way is to actually look at the inner ripple effect. 
So as soon as I say that in this moment, the momentum is not about me, but it's about we, I put a break on my ego. And as soon as I put that break, even in that short moment, I fall into a deeper interconnectedness. And in that deeper interconnectedness, there's a kind of stillness. And that stillness brings me a sense of clarity and reconnection with A, my deepest calling, uh, your vows, whatever you call it, or your deepest nature. And that to me, so it's like you take this small action and that inner ripple effect is actually much more profound than any perception of an outer ripple effect that we might have. And so orienting yourself in that way with any small act of kindness, any small act of service or compassion, all of a sudden becomes an extremely spiritual act. Or it can. It's not just a, oh, it's a childish thing. You're doing a lemonade stand. It's like, oh, that's cute. We tend to foo-foo this kind of stuff. And you're like, oh, yeah. But you would be amazed that as you start doing this and you dismantle the inner architecture of your, you know, egoic patterns through that small act, you fall into something much deeper. And that guidance ends up creating a remarkable external as well as a continued internal ripple effect. Yeah, that's great. Another way of explaining it is that if we do certain things, it coarsens our awareness or or makes it cruder, more insensitive. If we do other things, it has the opposite effect. It it refines our awareness. It it cultures the heart. It makes you more subtle. Like you said, makes the mind more quiet. In my opinion, there's some people who argue that we don't have free will and all that, but I feel that, that as long as we perceive ourselves as having it, then we definitely do. There's a million little choices that we make all the time Should I go to the trouble of not stepping on this worm on the sidewalk? Or could I even pick it up and put it on the grass so it won't dry out in the sun? Or should I just keep walking and ignore it? You you pick up the worm and throw it on the grass. And it kind of feels good. You're saving a little life. It has some effect on you. And who knows what the karmic implications are for the worm or anything else. But just living that way. I mean, you don't have to become a Jane and starve yourself to death. Because then you're killing a a fairly evolved being in the interest of not killing broccoli. But all these little things as you navigate your life, they're a spiritual practice in addition to whatever other spiritual practices like meditation or something you may be doing. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think the opportunity for inner transformation, you know, I've spent a long, long time on the meditation cushion. And I say this even after that, that I think just as meaningful as that is, I've never sat on a meditation cushion, gotten up and said, oh, I wasted an hour. It's like, it's always been a good use of my hour. And yet I would add to that, that just as that is powerful, so is doing that small act with great love. I think that is just as potent, although we don't have the eyes to necessarily see all the tentacles of transformation that happen through that. Yeah, I think that's so important. I live in a community where a couple thousand people meditate, and I've been here for decades. I remember there was a company, I forget the name of it, and I probably shouldn't mention it anyway, which was selling some kind of risky investment schemes. And, you know, these people would spend a couple hours in the morning and evening meditating, and then they'd go and work at this company, and they'd be on the phone, you know, basically talking little old grannies to invest their life savings in this stuff. And then they'd come back again and meditate in the evening. And, you know, it's like, how could they do that? 
it's like you're trying to fill a bathtub and you don't plug the drain. So the water just keeps going out. You can meditate so you're blue in the face, but if you behave reprehensibly in between time, it's definitely counterproductive. Well, it's, it's 22 hours over the two. You know, you want to try to take care of it 24 hours of the day as, as far as your conditions allow it. So I would say still good that you're there doing the two and, and hopefully it multiplies to a lot more than two. And the SEC shut that business down. So hopefully they found more gainful employment. <laughs> and also there's something to the sincerity, right? Just because you're, you could do a small act of kindness, but secretly be propagating your ego, right? Like you could mm-hmm. just take 25,000 selfies and you could try to make a whole, you know, you could try to have all kinds of agendas behind that smallest act and that's no good. And similarly, you could be sitting in meditation, you know, Ram Dass used to talk about this and you're just sitting there for hours and hours and days and days. And all you've done is just propagate your inner fantasies and doesn't really go too far. So you can't really judge an external or your cultivation, I think, through what you're doing externally. But I don't think you can even do that through the experiences that you might experience, that you might go through. It becomes very hard to actually judge the efficacy of anything. And then I think slowly, bit by bit, that drops you into a state of much deeper surrender. And that then guides a naturally compassionate act, as opposed to you saying, oh, this is a much better thing for me to do. This is a thing that is going to create like, oh, X million ripple effects in the world. I'm not so sure that kind of logic. At least I don't think I can trust my inner ego to give me all of that data and to guide that action. So for me, at least that has not been a good way to go. We'll get into discussing some of the various things you have been doing, but continuing along here, based on what you just said, I'm thinking, so what is a good way of having your finger on the pulse of whether you're on the right track or not. Yeah, I I, I do. One of my friends went to a monk one time and he says, when I have a choice, when I do this or this, which one, what should I do? And he says, I have never regretted doing what's hardest on my ego. I think that's good advice. Like if you were to look and say, look, am I a better person? This is a question I ask myself. Am I a happier person? Am I a better person for having done this? Over time, you may think in the short term that, yeah, watching TV and eating my favorite ice cream makes me happy. And then over time, you realize, oh, that doesn't make me deeply happy. So then you experiment. And as you experiment further and further and genuinely, sincerely look at the whole operation, and then you realize that, oh, actually, it isn't giving. Like St. Francis was right. It isn't giving that we receive. That Dalai Lama was right when he says, you know, I think Oprah asked him a question, what do you know for sure? And he said something very simple. He says, it takes giving to be happy. And what is giving, right? Giving is not the external act. Giving is the internal departure from the me to this falling into a deeper we. And anything that helps you do that, uh, or even an experiment where you fail in attempting to understand that is a very significant process. Yeah. I've just been studying the Kata Upanishad with Swami Sarvapriyananda. And so there's the story of Nachiketa, right? And his father is doing this ceremony to attain heaven and he's giving away all these cows. And Nachiketa said, well, wait a minute, you're giving away the old cows that don't produce milk anymore and all that stuff, you know? So what are you getting out of that? And he ends up 
going and seeing Yama, the Lord of Death, and then Yama offers him all these goodies, and they get into this discussion about the pleasant, what is it, Preya or something, and then versus the good, Shreya, that which is immediately pleasant or gratifying might not actually produce fulfillment as reliably or, or as fully, in fact, it'll produce the opposite, as that which might not be so gratifying in the moment, but yields long-term benefits. Yeah. And I think that short-term, long-term edge, all too often, we have this, what do the scientists call it? The recency bias, right? Just what you just remembered, you know, and I think what we are biased towards is the patterns of of the ego. And so I think we tend to look for that short-term gratification. And if we can just arrest that, if we can give ourselves that latitude to have, be a little bit more equanimous uh, and move from that equanimity uh, to thinking about something that's not just long-term, at some point, even eternal, Yeah, right? It's outside of time and space. If you're able to tap into that and you say, well, what is going to be true outside of time and space? And what is going to be true outside of your inner architecture of thought? I remember I was in a conversation. I was giving a talk somewhere at a business school and people were asking all these questions. And at some point, some person started to get very spiritual and in an argumentative way. And I was like, okay, well, what's the skillful response here? And I just asked him, what would you be able to tell me? What do you know that is true that you haven't thought of? And if you're still using your mind as the only apparatus, you can think that thought is, it is a form of intelligence, but it's not the only form. And it's certainly not the deepest form. And just arresting all of these mechanisms and time itself is a technology of the mind as well. So how do you start to arrest these mechanisms and go a little deeper and then use these mechanisms. It's not to like shun all of this. You, you, you certainly need to use it to be in service and to practice compassion. But it's one thing to use it. It's another thing to be used by it. Ah, that's nice. If I understand what you're saying, being used by it to me evokes the notion of being an instrument of the divine, which has its own intelligence, which far exceeds ours. So like what you're saying about just using your own individual thought to work things out, it has a very limited scope of knowledge or of perspective, whereas the essence of life, divine intelligence, if you want to call it that, has an infinitely comprehensive scope. And yeah. if we can get out of the way, there's a phrase that Brahman is the charioteer. If we can let that drive the chariot of our life, then we can serve as a very effective instrument. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. But to hold that view, Rick, it requires a lot of surrender. St. Francis of Assisi had this quote, he says, preach always, but use words only when necessary. You may have a certain idea of what doing good is, always preaching, but maybe it's preaching in silence. Like it's, so you start holding all the paradoxes. And when you're to hold all these paradoxes, that maybe it's about making an immediate impact, or maybe it's about making an impact seven generations later. And to hold all of that together, it's not like, oh, I'm just a seventh generation guy that I just do small acts or that, oh, I'm just a listener being humble in the back. Like maybe you're at the front, maybe you're in the middle, maybe you're at the end and you're not interested in the position in the train necessarily. You're ready to frictionlessly oscillate based on the needs of emergence. And so it requires this deeper faith, I think, in emergence. Yeah, not only a deeper faith, but we've alluded to the fact that 
Well, we both have been meditating for a long time and quite extensively sometimes. I don't know if that's the key for everybody, but for a lot of people, an effective practice which ends up grounding you experientially in a much deeper state that you don't have to think about all day long because it's just it just becomes your default way of functioning is infinitely more valuable than just trying to intellectually work all this out and figure out which would be the best thing and and so on and so forth you, you can't really grasp it with the individual intellect yeah absolutely and and so then you look at everything you do and you say where all am i scheming where is my mind creating this sneaky little strategy to get ahead? And, you know, get ahead, not just in the corporate materialistic worldly ways, even in the world of spirituality, even in the world of service, you can try to get ahead. I remember I was in a 30-day retreat and like, I don't know, day 24 or something. I was like, oh my God, I'm trying to get progress. I am just sitting there and sitting there and sitting there. And I am secretly, which I wasn't conscious of until that moment where I, you know, at the conscious level, I know it's not about any of this. Right. And like, I know I have to let go of all of this. So I'm sitting there, I'm doing my thing. And then I'm like, you know, I'm secretly going for progress, which means that I have a very strong idea of where I was before. And I have an addiction to where I want to be later. Mm -hmm. And both of those are ideas. And so it's like in the name of getting out of the prison of these beliefs and ideas and internal dogmas, I was actually propagating them. And, and so, you know, these things are hard to unravel, but I think that's what cultivation is about, is to undo all these mechanics. Yeah. Maybe this is not how you meant it, but I don't think there's anything wrong with progress per se. It can become a situation where you don't appreciate the present because you're always chasing some dangling carrot living for some glorious future that has not yet arrived. But that is not to say that we don't progress, which some spiritual teachers dismiss. They say, this is as good as it gets. Don't expect anything more. It would be cruel to say that to somebody who was miserable or psychotic or something like that. It can get a lot better. There can be progress, but it's sort of on the basis of this moment and this moment and this moment. Yeah, I agree with that as well. Even if I look at myself, I feel like I have progressed on the metric of happiness, on the metric yeah. of joy, and the metric of compassion and kindness than where I was 20 years ago. Yeah, me too. And it keeps happening. But I think the core question is, did it happen because of me or despite me? And I think that's the thing. I want to be happier 20 years later, right? I want to be a kinder, more compassionate person 20 years later. Am I going to increase my chance of doing that by actually saying, I'm going to be happy, or am I going to increase my chances of by actually letting go? And I think there's a kind of balance between effort and grace. And sometimes grace shows up as an effort. I'm very big on effort. I work hard. I work a lot. So I'm big on effort in some sense. But I think this is where I find uh, the teachings of the Gita very apt. You do all the effort. It's not effort versus grace. I think it's 100% effort and 100% grace. And that feels like a paradox, but that's exactly the kind of paradox that arrests your mind and lets you go beyond the field of mind and matter. I was just going to quote that very verse. You know, you have control over action alone, never over its fruits, live not for the fruits of action, nor attach yourself to inaction. You can focus like a son of a gun to do your best in each moment. And that's the effort part. But then the grace part is what comes of it. Maybe great stuff comes of it. Maybe nothing comes of it. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility was to do the thing. 
that's a profound teaching. It sounds like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, well, let go of the outcomes. Well, first of all, for a lot of people in the modern context and in the modern dream that we are sold by the dominant paradigm, it's like, oh, my God, if I release all control, it'll be chaos. Or that just doesn't feel like the right thing to do. But I think that's an untested hypothesis. If you actually let go, do you think it's going to be chaos? Do you think that you'll be walked all over with other forces of life? Or does something else happen? I've experimented with the latter, and I've happily discovered that actually there's a lot more magic and beauty and joy when you let go of the outcomes. Just do your duty, as the Gita says, but fulfill your calling in the moment. Yeah. And sometimes that verse or that teaching is misinterpreted to mean that you shouldn't be motivated by any outcome. Like, but I think that's a little off because obviously if you're doing a thing, you're trying to accomplish something. You're not just randomly doing stuff with no idea whatsoever why you're doing it. But if you've done your best, then the outcome is not really in your hands. It will come if it's meant to come. I think over time, we get more and more aligned with, we could call it cosmic intelligence, and things do tend to pan out when we put our attention on them, but not always. Yeah, I think that what starts to unravel is the quality of the motivations. And the through line between the quality of the motivations and the quality of the outcome. So you wanted a certain outcome, but you can be motivated. You obviously need motivation to fulfill that action. But the question is, what is the quality of that motivation, if that quality, in, and in science speak, you would say extrinsic motivation versus intrinsic motivations. Extrinsic motivators are like money or power or fame. I can be motivated to do this action for extrinsic purposes, or I can be motivated to do it for intrinsic purposes. And what is the difference between the two? Now, if you look at our whole economy, it's rooted entirely in extrinsic motivators. But there's a whole bunch of inner intrinsic motivators, right? You can even look at fun or purpose. These are all intrinsic motivators. And this is where science hasn't really distinguished between these. But this is where monks and nuns and so many different traditions help us nuance this. They say that even in that field of intrinsic, there's actually a big difference between anger as an intrinsic motivation or fun as an intrinsic motivation or purpose as an intrinsic motivation going all the way far out to compassion as an intrinsic motivator. And what is the through line of impact that you're seeing on the outside to the quality of the motivations that we are holding? So first, we just need to move from extrinsic to intrinsic, but then you even start to nuance the intrinsic and you say, oh, well, what's on the farthest end of intrinsic? And the Buddha spoke about this very deeply. And he said, he spoke about the four Brahma Viharas. And he says, these are our resident sort of native states. And one of those is compassion. Another one is joy. Another one is metta. Another one is equanimity. And these are the four core Brahma Viharas, which are Vihara is like house. And Brahma says, like, this is the house of Brahma. This is the foundation on which all action, all great action is built. And metta is loving kindness, right? Loving kindness. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So those four Brahma Viharas are characteristics, you might say, of a state of spiritual attainment. That's what the Buddha is saying, that if you have attained Buddhahood or some semblance of it or something, then these will characterize your nature and be reflected in your activity. Is that correct? 
Yeah, and, and that this is your fundamental nature. Because even on the spiritual track, Rick, you can be an entrepreneur, so to speak, which is to say accumulate spiritual merit and do all kinds of things with the sort of power intention. And it's very different. I've met so many different spiritually cultivated folks. And with some of the folks I meet, I'm like, wow, they're just collecting, but in a different currency, you know, in a subtler spiritual realm, like they're materialistic, but it's just subtle materialism. And so for a person who doesn't have uh, insight into that, that looks like amazing. But I think where the Buddha is inviting us, where we're not just the Buddha, I mean, all awakened saints, I think where they're inviting us is to say, hey, even there, that's a little detour, let go of that accumulation that tendency to grab, that tendency to have this subtle continuity. And when you release that, you fall into your natural state, which are these four Brahma Viharas. Or you can even simplify it and say, hey, compassion and appreciative joy. You don't need to find those. You don't need to cultivate those. You actually just need to drop into them. Yeah, yeah. Because they're there. They're there. This in is a, who we are. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's who a serial killer is. But in his case, everything is all occluded and covered up with all kinds of garbage. And so he doesn't appreciate that inner reservoir that he's got. And I think we're all clouded to the degree that we have identities is the degree to which we are jumbled up in different ways to different degrees. But that's the invitation is to use this. But I think that's also the trap is that you can go pretty far on the intrinsic motivation spectrum and still get into these very dangerous detours. The Buddha himself, when he got awakened, his first act of gratitude was to find his two most recent teachers. And they had both just passed away. And he looks for one of them with his divine vision. And he's like, oh, my God, one of them was in the highest realm of existence. And he's like, I can't help them. They're in a state of bliss. And so it'll take them a long time to realize that there is no continuity because it was so subtle. And he's just going to be in bliss for a very long time. But that will change. And he doesn't have the orientation to understand and appreciate and then ultimately awaken from that sense of false solidity. And so here's like the Buddha's last teacher and Buddha has gratitude after awakening. And he's like looking to find him and he says, can't help him. And so I think there's a lot of these spiritual detours that we can get stuck in. So in other words, what you're saying, in case people didn't get that, was that Buddha's former teacher had ascended to a very high loka or very high heaven, but that is not eternal. And he will eventually have to come back from that and uh, work things out over again. I just heard last night, I think it was Vivekananda once said to a Western audience, I'm not here to tell you how to get to heaven. I'm here to tell you how not to get to heaven. <laughs> oh, is that right? That's a great quote. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of like, whoa, what does he say? Because he was talking about a state of liberation that is not transitory as in Vedic tradition, heavens are considered to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love that. I didn't know Vivekananda said that. Vivekananda, incidentally, was also a pretty formative influence for me in my teen years. Jay Krishnamurti and Vivekananda were. That whole tradition, the Ramakrishna tradition, is actually quite formative for me right now. And it hasn't been up until recent years. But as I say, I've been taking these classes and studying it. And really, it's nothing totally new to me, but it's a really good outfit. A lot of wisdom in that lineage. Incredible. And a lot of ripple effects, right? Like he went to Rockefeller. I don't know if you know the story of Vivekananda and then Rockefeller. I don't. Essentially, Rockefeller was inspired to philanthropy by Vivekananda. Oh, cool. 
because Vivekananda is like telling him, he doesn't even look up when he, uh, Rockefeller comes to see him. And he kind of looks and he says, uh, you know, I think you're going to die. You have a lot of health problems. And unless you change your ways, you're going to have a lot of suffering. Mm-hmm. And that was it. Vivekananda didn't want anything. And the guy, Rockefeller was like, what? And then he ended up actually being diagnosed with something. And he's like, who is that Hindu monk there? And, and he essentially guided him on a path of philanthropy. But yeah, it was actually a very formative experience for Rockefeller. Yeah. Those early teachers in that lineage also had a big effect on uh, Houston Smith and William James, I think, and a whole bunch of them. Very impactful. There's another thread in our conversation right here that I wanted to pursue. And that is what I heard you saying a minute ago is that as you progress on the path, you have to fine tune your discrimination so as not to get off the track. It reminded me of a Padmasambhava quote, which I quote almost every week because I, I like this quote. But basically, he said, um, "He said, although my awareness is as vast as the sky, my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour. I like that. In other words, you don't just sort of rest on your laurels at a certain point. You actually become more discerning and more and more subtly discriminating as you go along. And even if you're a great realized sage like him, you can't be sloppy. You're careful. You really can't. I mean, if you look at Krishna and how Krishna passed away with an arrow in his toe bleeding away, there's the laws of nature that we're all bound by. So, you know, to try to project onto that and try to bypass some of those laws It doesn't really make any sense, you know, after a while. So I think to try to superimpose your will or your idea of good or any idea really is, I think, not a wise thing to do. So you do have to be careful of the process. And I think there's a lot of spiritual traps on the journey. My wife was going through a whole series of mystical experiences at some point, and we ran into this guy who's actually a painter, but also a mystic. And he shared something very beautiful. He says, on the spiritual path, you'll run across a lot of gold nuggets, but don't pick it up unless it falls in your lap. And if you go around looking for it, you're in trouble. If you go pick up something that hasn't fallen in your lap, you're in trouble you can easily get into trouble, especially in those subtler realms. So all you really got to do is just stick to your lane, stick to your vows, to your calling, to your principles, then you'll be on track. That's a very hard thing to do. And it's a very hard thing to discern as well. I think it was uh, Ajahn Chua, head of it, same sort of uh, principle, but in a different story, he shared how it's like you sit under a tree, you put your hand out, you're hungry and you wait for the mango to drop in your hands. It sounds so simple, but we are usually scheming and we're like, you know, shaking the tree and we're first we're moving the hands and we're like, oh, here. Okay. Okay. No, it's going to be here. And then we just start scheming and we're like, oh, this doesn't make sense. And then you start climbing up the tree or worse, you start genetically modifying the tree and you're like, oh, this will give me a lot more mangoes. Chop the tree down so you can get the mangoes. Very short-term thinking. That's right. That's right. Stick to that. Whatever falls in your lap, honor it, but to not uh, climb on conditions, as they say, to not scheme and try to get ahead in what seems like your idea of getting ahead. You know, that Gita verse, satisfied with whatever comes unasked beyond the pairs of opposites. Beautiful. Is there anything in the back of your mind at this point that you've thought of that we haven't actually had a chance to talk about? 
you know, we were talking about Krishna and there was just this one story that had come to my mind at one point. There's this one phrase or the concept, you know, there's a dog on Krishna's chariot and the dog is wagging its tail and it's in its ignorance. This is used as a metaphor in its ignorance. It says, oh, I moved the chariot left by moving my tail to the left. And I think that's the distinction between causation or this confusion between causation and correlation, that it was just a correlation, you know, just because I ate ice cream and it rained, it doesn't mean me eating ice cream is making it rain. So that to me is one of the big, to not think like we know causation, even the Buddha made it pretty clear, even if you're awakened, you do not know causation. Only the Buddha would know because he has just done a lot of work. But even if you're awakened, you do not understand all the laws of cause and effect. It's just an intricate, intricate, complex, vast web. And so to not assume that and to just uh, focus instead on the principles that guide that emergence, I think is a pretty key practice. Yeah, Krishna says unfathomable is the course of action. In other words, human intellect can't grasp or fathom the ramifications of every little action and all the karmic ripples and and all that stuff and uh, it's just beyond our scope but again it comes back to grounding ourselves in that intelligence which does fathom it and even though we might not gain access to that kind of omniscience we're able to flow along riding on its coattails so to speak you know riding on that wave of that it generates we become the beneficiary of that vast cosmic knowledge, even though we don't necessarily appreciate it as it itself appreciates it. Yeah. The more I practice and I try to look at life from this lens, I realize that it's not even just a dog on Krishna's chariot. I might just be, sometimes we'll joke about it. I'm like a fly on the tail of the dog on Krishna's chariot. (laughs) It's just like the causation of, you know, so to think that I have done this in the world, or I have had this impact, or I am this significant in this way. These just seem to me like false traps. Like that quote you said, even with the deeper awareness, you're losing track of the barley, so to speak. And so that to me is a great practice. And and really at its core, I think what the, uh, I, I really go to the Buddha's teaching here as well. He was asked to his attendant said, you know, you talk a lot about noble friendships, he said. It seems like half of the path is just noble friendships. And the Buddha says, no, Anand, it's not just half of the path. It's the full path. The full path. And the Buddha did not approximate. If it was 99.8%, he would say 99.8% of the path. He was very specific. And what is noble friendship? I mean, that's essentially the field of deep relationships that keeps you on track. And so I've always had this faith that in service, when I serve you, even if I'm holding a door open or coming on the shore or whatever, and you serve me, you create a kind of an affinity. And that affinity, if it is rooted in deep principles of compassion, can become a noble friendship. And that noble friendship is the only thing that's going to give you resilience on this very long path. Not any thoughts you have or not any frameworks, because those are all arising and passing. And you can't really be, if you expand your horizon to eternity and you expand your context across very wide ranges of time and space, what's going to stay true across all of it? 
certainly not the material things, but it's also not going to be the mental contents of your mind. It's going to be something even subtler. I believe the Buddha when he says noble friendship, because that's in a very small way. That's been my experience as well. And that really connects service to spirituality in a very direct way, because you create noble friendships through service. Yeah, I'd never thought of it in terms of that phrase, noble friendships. Are noble friendships the kind where we've actually built some familiarity with the person? Or are you saying that as you walk down the street or as you go through the grocery store checkout line or something, there is a quality of noble friendship with every interaction that you experience? I mean, I think there's a potential of it, but what makes it noble is actually the organizing principle of our intention. And so the idea really is that if you are rooted in that space in you, which is noble, which is around at its deepest level, which is about the four Brahma Viharas or any, however you frame it, if you are rooted in that deep part of you and the other person is rooted in that deep part of them, then that's really the field in which noble friendships can arise. I see what you mean. It's less of like me going out. It's not like, okay, me getting a thousand Twitter followers, right? It's like, (laughs) I'm going to now have this scheme and I'm going to get ahead and I'm going to make this happen. You can't do that. All you can do is actually put yourself into that noble friendship space. And that is what will increase the propensity of all that comes your way. And if there is nobleness on the other side, it will naturally, like a magnet, create that kind of a connection. So we can't control other people, but we can control uh, the, uh, you know, our intrinsic state. I think I understand. Well, you know, Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And then Krishna said that one can achieve a state where one sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self. And based on my understanding of noble friendships from the last two minutes, I think what you're alluding to is an orientation in which you actually literally see the self, capital S, in all beings, and all beings contained within the wholeness of Brahman or or the self, and thereby there's this infinite intimacy with everyone. And the golden rule is easy to follow, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, because they are you, you see them as you, you perceive them as you. I would even make it even more concrete. If you look at our daily lives, we have multiple kinds of relationships. So I really like this idea of relationships as a mirror, right? So if you have a me-to-me connection, that's very much a transaction. I'm rooted in the me, you're rooted in the me, and we're both like trying to see what we can get from it, right? And that's very much a transactional thing. But I can be rooted in a we part of me, and I can't control you. But if you're in the me and I'm in the we, I'm going to be a giver, right? I'm going to give to you. And if it's the other way, I'm going to be a taker. So if I'm in the me and you're nice and compassionate to me, I'm going to be a taker. But what's most interesting is where we get into a we to we connection. Mm. That if I'm in the we and you're in the we, then you really have this deep bond. And what is the trajectory of this deep bond? That trajectory of this deep bond is over time, it's like even we to we is limiting. It's not just me to me as transaction. We to we is a deep relationship, but it's actually when you get to the us, 
that you have something much more profound because even, even in the we, you can say, oh, all these bald people come together and they're totally a we. And we do that. We do that with all kinds of different associations and everyone within the circle is great and everyone outside the circle is not me, right? And so even the we can be very limiting. And this is where if you really start to go to the us, that's where the noble friendship arises. That's with a field in which you have this great deep compassion awaken. And so every relationship in that sense, it's not just perceiving and giving yourself a pep talk and saying, oh, this person is divine. It's actually to go into that moment and say, well, first, what space am I in? Am I in the me or, oh, I like this person because he's, he is like me. He thinks like me, he's spiritual, all of that. And is that a we? And can I go even deeper into the us? And if you can, then by the organic self-organization of the universe, you start to really come together into this us connection, which is rooted in noble friendship. And that, to me, is what gives us this incredible resilience. In my life, if I look at it, it's not that I don't fall. It's that every time you fall, you're on a trampoline and you bounce back up higher. What is the trampoline? The trampoline is this web of noble friendships. Yeah. And I would suggest that it's not something you have to, Jesus, for instance, didn't have to think himself into that over and over again all day long. That was just his normal way of functioning, seeing people as the self. I and my father are one. And he could probably also say, we're all within the father. So in the oneness, we all abide like fish in the ocean. And I'm just using him as a case in point, but I think one can function from a state in which none of this is intellectual gymnastics you have to do with yourself. It's just your natural way of being. And we can ask ourselves what percentage of our interactions are transactional, what percentage of our interactions are as givers, and what percentage of our interactions are purely just no strings attached emergence. And that's the me to we to us. That's a very good mirror. Once you get rooted in the us, you just cannot go back to the transactional. You just can't. You don't go in saying, oh, this is good. Even this conversation or any conversation, you don't go in and saying, oh, what if this gets a million views or can I use Rick in that way? You could, but what if there's some other emergence which is even far more profound than that, that you haven't, you didn't even have the capacity to think of? So you don't know these things. So why even try to go down after a while? You just don't do that. You know, once you have fiber optic connection, who wants to go back to dial up? Remember that? Exactly. (laughs) The old modems. (laughs) Okay, good. About four questions came in. So I want to ask those and it'll cause us to jump around a little bit. But then once I've asked those, I want to get into more specifics about all the stuff you've been doing, which is fascinating. I would recommend that people who enjoy this interview also search for you on YouTube and listen to some of your talks because there are all kinds of uh, great stories you tell and all kinds of interesting things, anecdotes. Maybe I'll make you tell this one before we do the questions. There was the guy who was held up at knife point by some kid and he gave him his wallet and then he gave him his coat and tell the rest of the story. Yeah, this is the story of Julio Diaz. Yeah, this guy on the subway is like, give me everything you got, you know, and the guy's like, okay, here's my wallet. And he's going away. As he's going away comes uh, this guy who was just robbed, looks to the kid and he says, hey, you know, it's a little cold. Do you want my jacket too? The thief is being asked to like, oh, wait, you forgot this. You know, you want something more. And so he takes 
he's like, oh, actually, it is a little cold and I could use the jacket. All right, I'll take it. And then as he's going away, he comes back to him and he's like, hey, I'm about to go have uh, dinner. You want to join? And the kid again is like, is this a trap? Like, what do I do? And so he goes, they have dinner together. And Julio is, you know, just a nice guy. And he talks to everybody. And they have this wonderful conversation. And at the end of it, Julio says, uh, it's time to pay the check. Julio says, hey, kid, I would pay for your tab, but uh, I don't have my wallet. And so the kid wonderfully gives him back the wallet. And at that point, Julio says, can I ask for one more thing? He says, what? And he says, can I have your knife too? And he gives him the knife. I think what's compelling about that story is that it's so contextual. It's not to say, okay, well, when you're getting robbed, you know, invite the person to dinner. This is not a recipe. It, it, like, it wouldn't always work. Right? That's not going to work. That's right. <laughs> but it is that this potential is there. And can you discover that skillfulness, that context? And that context is not just the way in which you speak and the way in which you give your coat and your wallet. It's actually also who you are. And it's who the other person is. And there are so many examples of sages where they're deeply awakened people and they will say, oh, I can't transform this person, but maybe my right-hand man or my left-hand man can because they have those affinities. So it's not about a spiritual might that actually creates this transformation. It's that it was his to do. And when it was his to do, he recognized it and he actually had the capacities to not be transactional about it, which then led to a powerful transformation. And so I think there's a, you know, there's a compelling lesson underneath that. Yeah, great. I'm going to ask you these questions. This one is from Dennis Sullivan in Beaverton, Ontario. You mentioned that you were laughing when you had a moment of enlightenment. David Godman, who is a you know, David, he writes uh, biographies of Papaji and Nisargadatta and Ramana Maharshi and all that. David mentioned in one of his videos the observation of people around Papaji laughing without cause to the point that it would annoy him. Is there something significant in the act of laughing that Papaji used as a tool or imparted to people in his presence? I'm not sure about this question because maybe you don't even know anything about Papaji, but is there anything you can get from that? I would say laughing in general. I think there's a kind of sense of joy, but also comedy, right? Like comedy in the sense of, I think, taking things lightly. I think just realizing the erroneous ways of our internal apparatus and at some point be like, oh my God, <laughs> I didn't quite have it right. And not to beat yourself up with it, but just to laugh. So to me, I'm not sure of the essence of that question, but to me, laughter, Thich Nahan used to say that sometimes your joy is the reason of your smile. Sometimes your smile is the reason for your joy. So I think there are biochemical things that do happen because of the smile. But I think at some level, I think you want to take things lightly. And to me, uh, if you can laugh at things that happen to you, you're probably in good shape. You're not subsumed by other reactions, which means you're going to be open to deeper insight. Yeah, you know that guy who does laughter yoga and he, he gets people out in, in a field or something and they all just start going, ho, 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 you know, yeah. laughing and laughing. And next thing you know, they're actually doubling over with <laughs> genuine laughter. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've done that. It's great to do. I mean, of course, there is a biological element to it. I think the way in which you breathe, I think there's a lot to it. 
And then there's a kind of sense of levity as well. And there's a sense of contagiousness. And we know that all these things, especially if you do it in a group, right? If others are yawning, you're going to yawn. If others are like totally cracking up, that's just going to make you crack up. And, and when you smile, it's hard to have a frown on your face. Yeah. Here's a question from Michael Moran in London. I read somewhere recently that samadhi is associated specifically with jnana yoga as opposed to bhakti or karma yoga, but do not find any scriptural or authoritative reference to support this. Do you have any thoughts on this? Scriptural references to what? To suggest that samadhi is associated with jnana yoga as opposed to bhakti or karma yoga. I have some thoughts on that, but do you have any? To me, personally, I think all of those four delineations in Hinduism, I think that's true at a certain level of consciousness. You can say that there are these four different paths. Bhakti is a certain entrance into this. Knowledge is a certain entrance into this. Karma Yoga, which I think probably has been my path, is a certain entrance to it. Raj Yoga as well. But I think at some level, and this has been true in my experience, all four of those kind of merge, right? I think those delineations are not... The boundaries of those are not as distinct as we might think they are. That I think there's a deep absorption quality to bhakti yoga, you know, that you can totally get into. I think there's a deep, as we've been talking about action, right? Like there's a deep way to look at action. So it leads to a stillness of the mind. There's a deep way of uh, insight and meditation that leads to a deep stillness of the mind. So I think all paths do lead there. There's different gateways. But as you walk a little further into that gate, I think you end up arriving at something that's quite fundamental. I also think that samadhi can be a component of every path. You could have a practice where you dip into samadhi for a little while and then come out and engage in karma, some kind of activity, or in bhakti and devotional practices, or in jnana, you sit around studying the scriptures all day. And to a certain extent, I think it depends on one's temperament and makeup, which activity is more dharmic for you. But samadhi, which is just a Sanskrit word for transcendence or dipping into pure consciousness, can be fundamental to all those paths. Yeah. And there's also so many layers to those samadhis. Yes, all kinds of different samadhis. All kinds of different samadhis. And some of them are helpful and required, and some of them can be distractions as well. And so one has to use that discerning capacity even through all of that. And again, to me, it's uh, whose discerning capacity are you going to use? Whose apparatus will you have access to in those deep moments of absorption? To me, that insurance comes from noble friendships. So to me, it's all related to some of the themes that we've been talking about. So the next two questions actually allude to things we haven't really talked about much yet, but this will give us a a segue into your explaining more about them. So the first one is from Carrie Lake in Encinitas, California, who asks, will you please speak about the transformation you've experienced since you first started service space? So tell us about service space and not only what has it done, but how has it influenced you? Oh, it's influenced me dramatically. It's changed me, I think, for the better. You know, I started Service Space back in 1999 was our first project, so more than 22 years now. And through all of that, I would say the biggest way it has changed me is it has given me a deeper understanding of compassion. I think it's made me realize that there's a difference between sympathy and empathy and compassion. Sympathy is where you pity other people and you help 
And, you know, there's a beautiful Rachel Naomi Remen quote that says, when you help, you see life as weak. When you fix, you see life as broken. And when you serve, you see life as a co-creative whole. And I would go even further and I would say that even beyond service is offering, that I'm actually grateful that I have a chance to make this offering. Because through this offering, regardless of its external ripple effect, it is transforming me. And so there's this incredible gratitude in that state of offering. And I think only compassion, sympathy or empathy cannot get you to that place of offering. It has to be compassion because compassion is regenerative. And scientists have measured this. These are very different neurochemical states. Sympathy is, is a very different state than empathy, where you feel like everyone's empathy is where you feel like everyone's pain is yours. And in compassion, it's a very different state where you know your boundaries and yet you're able, you feel called to be in service. And so to me, having a deeper understanding of all of this has been a very incredible insight. And I think it has deepened my faith. I think it was an untested hypothesis. I grew up, my mom and dad would have these phrases from the Gita and, you know, release all the outcomes and act for the sake of action. All these things you kind of knew, but then you're like running an organization, right? And you're like, okay, well, what does that actually look like? And even this idea, I think initially people would ask me, what do you do? And I would say, I volunteer. And they're like, oh, what do you really do? And I'm like, no, I really volunteer. And then I realized that, okay, you talk to a whole bunch of people in different settings and they're like, they need a title. And I'm like, okay, what's the title? CEO just doesn't sound right. I don't know, board member. No. So I use founder and I say, okay, I'm a founder. I mean, that's true. But really, is that true? Was I a fly on the tail of the dog on Krishna's chariot? <laughs> right? There are so many causes to it. Sure, I can find a through line and say, I was a major part of these causes that created this thing called service space. But really, there were so many factors that allowed that to emerge. And that's true with everything. And so you say, oh, well, it's happening. And it's less ownership of it. And so to me, if I would have held this idea 20 years ago and said, oh, it's happening, it would have been a confusing idea at that time. Because it's like, what do you mean? I'm creating. I have to have these meetings. I have to have rally people together. You got to coordinate and you got to do stuff, right? And you got to have a collective story and all of that. And I look back now and I realize that actually it did happen and there is something happening and it's definitely going right now as well. But I'm not so sure if it's just mine. And that makes complete sense to me now. Whereas before it made a little bit of sense and that just makes total sense to me now. So it's not just a thing that's present intellectually or that's present on the meditation cushion. Like you can actually be in the mud of the world and still have access to this kind of a lotus, this kind of a lotus of acting without wanting stuff in return without having an agenda, without trying to promote, without trying to scheme, without trying to get ahead. And we have you know, principles that support that. Like one of our principles is we don't fundraise. And you would think like, oh, when you don't fundraise, how are you going to survive? And that's just an untested hypothesis. It's like, oh, I didn't have a five-year plan when I was in my mother's womb and I've survived. 
what are the different factors that are, you know, different causes and conditions? And I think just that deeper awareness of all of that has seeped into me because I practice this and I live it. And so now I just feel a lot lighter, I would say, than I was 20 years ago. And I hope to be a lot lighter even 20 more years later. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Lay off the gulab jamans, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or with the rest of Gulas. <laughs> right. But you still haven't quite told us what service space is and what it does. Well, it does a lot of things. Service space started in 1999 in the heart of the Silicon Valley. I think there were a few of us that came together and our primary intention was we wanted to serve. We wanted to grow in service. We wanted to change ourselves through these small acts of service. We ended up building a website for a nonprofit And that became the initial way of service that we were organized around, just building websites for other nonprofits at no cost and at no branding, nothing. What has emerged over the last 20 years is that it is now a collection of lots of people in lots of places around the world that want to serve, that want to do small acts of service with this orientation towards inner transformation. And that kind of a context is really helpful in our journeys of inner transformation. And so the way it manifests, initially, I think the first few years, we were doing a lot of different web services and web portals. So we would look at the world and we said, oh, there isn't enough good news because everyone's talking about fear-driven negative news. So we created a a daily good portal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just subscribed to that, by the way. There's about five different emails you can get that are either daily or weekly or monthly. And then there's several other things. I just subscribed to all of them yesterday. Uh, Yeah. YouTube came about and we said, well, what would KarmaTube be? Where you have an inspiring video, but you also have three actions you can take around that. And then we started a portal just on kindness because we said kindness is so incredible. Why don't we have a portal that shares ideas and it created a little game of smile cards where people do acts and leave smile cards behind and it kind of creates a community. And then we started doing a whole bunch of offline things as well. We started experimenting. One of those experiments was an awaken circle at my parents' place where we sit in silence for an hour. In the second hour, we have a circle of sharing. And in the third hour, my mom said, we'll feed whoever comes And then it has now spread to over 100 cities and in my own parents' place. I mean, this is an incredible emergence if you think about it. My mom and dad probably would have fed uh, more than 50,000 people. It's just a complete phenomenon. Up until the pandemic, every single Wednesday for, you know, 20 plus years. um, They're in the Bay Area, is it? They're in the Bay Area. Yeah, Mm. in, in the heart of the valley. And then it was so simple. It was so small that so many people said, hey, this is great. I could do this too. I have space. I can listen. In the second hour, there's no teachers. You're learning from each other. And, you know, I'm willing to serve in this small way by just offering a meal. And so those kinds of things. We took over a restaurant one time. Well, yeah, before you ahead. get onto that, I'm just curious. When people come and it's just a, I imagine a group of people of all different orientations and probably not the same people every week. How does it go having them sit in silence for an hour? I should think that unless the people are accustomed to meditating or something, a lot of them would get very antsy. Oh, yeah. So many of them have never sat an hour ever in their life. But through some reason, because we don't advertise it or we don't push it out, it's just kind of word of mouth is usually how people would find it. And so they're like, yeah, you should come to this thing. 
And there's so many value points that you're like, okay, you come, you sit in silence. And, you know, here you have on a usual Wednesday, you'd have 50, 60 people, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little less. And then they're like crammed like an Indian rickshaw, you know, they're all kind of crammed in this ordinary, you know, middle-class home. And there are people in the hallways, people in the <laughs> front of the bathroom and, and everyone's just silent. Huh. And what does it mean to first find that silence in yourself? but to actually meet each other in silence because you don't know most of the people that are there in the room. And your first time that you are together with somebody is in silence. What actually happens with it? And then in the second hour, when you're actually doing a circle of sharing, you're not saying, Oh, this person has more wisdom than the other person. You're actually saying that when you speak, I'm going to listen. And what, you know, initially you're thinking, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And after a while, you're like, wait, 99% of the time in the circle, my value add was listening. It wasn't speaking. People speak one at a time and everybody else listens? Or is it a little, what do you call them? Little doublets or? (laughs) No, no, no. It's just a circle of sharing. So it's, it's not like a dialogue. It's like, I'm sharing my aha moment of the week. I was driving and somebody cut me off and it sparked this inner insight, you know, and usually there's like a reading from different faiths. It's like, you know, a couple of paragraphs that sort of seeds it and someone else will open, but then you're just listening to everybody. And you'd be amazed that we live in a world where we all just want to speak. We all want to be the center. We think that's the way to contribute. And here you're like, wow, I'm listening. And you'd be amazed how far that goes. And then in the third hour, to receive a meal. And at our place, it's in silence. And you're just like, wow, this Indian mom is trying to expand her heart and says, I have my family, I have my loved ones, and I want to expand. In the Hindu tradition, there's this phrase called the Vasudeva Kutumbakam, the whole world. The world is my family. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not just a phrase that somebody says, right? It's like, they've spent the whole day They've got jobs and they've got all these different things. They've spent the whole day just trying to do this and for nothing. And at the end, when you go and say thank you to them, their response is, hey, we're grateful we had the opportunity to serve. And they're like, can we offer something? And they said, you know, the whole, we try to practice this idea that the whole world is our family. Why don't you pay it forward? However, your heart guides you. And it's one thing to do that once or twice. It's another to do it for 21 straight years, every single Wednesday as a practice. You know, they're not like going to get a Nobel Prize or any of that. And they don't want it. It's just a thing you do. It becomes you and you grow through it. And I've seen them grow. I've seen myself grow through it. And so that becomes, you know, we're sort of going on a detour with Awakened Circles, but it was, it's a very compelling archetype. And so we do these experiments, you know, service spaces full of these kinds of experiments around the world in different ways. Some are small, some end up scaling. Have you had Um, to suspend some of these things due to the pandemic? Oh yeah, all of them. In terms of awakening circles, but even like Karma Kitchens and then different places have opened up in different ways. So we also do a lot of different retreats, which are also on pause. The pandemic is definitely... Hopefully we'll um, get back to normal someday soon. Right. Okay, Karma Kitchen, you mentioned. Now, a question came in about that. Mark Peters from Santa Clara said, I was wondering if you could share something about the role of food and feeding others in Seva. I have heard some remarkable stories around this topic with regards to your mother, where you were just kind of telling that, and wife. Also, if you could share a story from Karma Kitchen, that would be great. Yeah. Was it Neem Karoli Baba? He had this phrase. 
he says, love all, serve all, feed all. And so this idea of, I think it's just so fundamental, it's so simple, we all need food, and it can be a great gateway to offering and to practice the heart of offering. Karma Kitchen was an interesting experiment that we did. So we went over and we said, well, what would happen if we change the rules of certain interaction that is transaction-based and we change the rules in a way that it turns it into uh, something a little deeper, right? Something either you have the give or taker or maybe noble friendship potential down the road. And so you walk into Karma Kitchen and your check reads zero. It's zero because someone before you has paid for you and you are trusted to pay forward for people after you. And so typically you go in and you say, this is my money. This is my order. This is my food. And you feel a huge sense of entitlement to it. And now you're going in and first of all, it's all run by volunteers and you're looking at this whole place and no one in the restaurant has paid for themselves. So for everyone is starting off with a gift and then they are invited to pay forward for people after them and just out of a heart of gratitude. So you feel gratitude and then you exercise that gratitude through whatever you want to leave. And will people leave enough or will they leave less or will they leave more? What will happen? We said, let's try it, whatever, you know, you try it. So we got a bunch of money together to rent this place. So we got all the food and we said, let's see if it exists the next week. And it existed the next week and then the week after and then week after and for so many years. And now in like, I think, 23 different places around the world, people have experimented with it. But it's a very ancient idea. It's a monastic idea, right? Like monks and nuns have existed like this for millennia. And how is it that they exist? Because it's nature funded. Nature funded in the sense that generosity begets more generosity. Compassion begets more compassion, but we don't have systems that help us experiment with that. And in our current world, you can't have your Lexus car dealership run in this way. But UC Berkeley actually did research on this. It was a seminal paper. It's widely cited. And the title of this paper was Paying More When Paying for Others. And we have incredible stories of how people are so deeply transformed when they encounter this kind of a generosity. Does that mean that people might pay more than they ordinarily would for that type of meal? If you have a strong context, a lot of people will say, well, does this actually work? Can it work? And I, right. and I would, does generosity work? And I'm like, generosity always works. The question is, do you have a strong enough context to compel that? So if you had a buffet line, probably wouldn't work. But if you had volunteers and, and right as you come in under the table, there's an inspiring quote and it's not scheming to get them to donate because nobody actually ever sees how much you're donating. So no one can correlate. And that's part of the principle. But at the end of the day, you look at the total amount and we would always end up with more, certainly in the Berkeley location where we had it for so many years. And so if you can create a strong context of which Volunteers are a part of which the ambiance is a part of which the kind of care, like in Japan, I think they even had a corner where like before you make a payment, you actually have a corner in silence, like they called it a prayer corner in the middle of a restaurant where you go in and you reflect and you spend 60 seconds and say, well, what is this worth to me? And how do I want to pay it forward to give this experience to somebody else? Have you ever had an experience where somebody tries to take advantage of it and they, they just start eating there regularly and not paying? All the time. Advantage in the sense that 
people are always going to be testing this kind of a thing out. And so at some level, it's not this kumbaya thing where you have no boundaries. This is not a homeless shelter, right? It's actually a reframing. Your audience is a restaurant going people where you are helping that population reframe from transaction to a deeper kind of trust and a deeper kind of connection. So you certainly have boundaries and, you know, we're a bunch of volunteers. Like we're not trying to solve the food problem in the world, but you can actually approach every transaction in this way. And so like a person at an acupuncture clinic, right? She says, I want to do this with my acupuncture clinic. There's a rickshaw driver in Ahmedabad where your wife has been, who has been running his rickshaw in this same way. I don't know if you've been to India recently, but you know, rickshaw not drivers. since uh, 86, I think was last time I was there. Okay. Well, I don't know how it was in 86, but definitely rickshaw drivers are known to not take you in a straight path. You're, Run up the tab, like, you mean? Yeah. You look at that context and in that context, this guy says, you know what? No, I, I'm not even going to run my meter. I have full faith in you. He even brings food that his wife has cooked. And this is not like a Bill Gates doing his philanthropy. This is a guy who needs all the money from that day to survive. And he is saying, I'm putting all my chips on love. That if I give to you, you will respond to that generosity in a way that serves the greater good. And he wanted to be in service to that. And everyone asked him, so does it work out? And he says, oh, I've got a ledger. In this book, you can read. Some people paid more. Some people paid less. You will have people who try to game the system. And you will also have people who give more. It evens out. So roughly, he says, I make as much as I used to before. But this is the wrong book. This is the book. And he gives them a second book. He says, this is where I ask people how they felt sitting in my rickshaw. And people take vows for life. Because they're like, man, this guy has taught me about generosity, about believing in the goodness of people. And I can do better in my life. I am going to pick up this practice. I'm going to do this. And he says, this is actually the value add of my rickshaw. So now you take somebody that the world might see as, hey, get me from point A to point B, and that's your utility. That person is now an agent of incredible compassion. And they're like, who started this? Who's funding? He's like, nobody. It's just me. Other people might have inspired him, but he just turned transaction into an experiment in trust. And then you have to find your own boundaries. It's not like, oh, all of a sudden there's utopia, right? You figure it out. And that's contextual. It's contextual to who you are. It's contextual to what your you know, staying capacity is. It's contextual to the culture you're embedded in, but it becomes a practice. And it's no longer just a thing you do there. And then I meditate or I pray or I go to the temple to do that over there. This becomes a kind of prayer. And that's very, very powerful. A minute ago, you mentioned, you know, we're not going to feed the world with Karma Kitchen. And that brought up the thought about the wealth inequity in the world. Uh, I've heard you and others cite statistics of a handful of people have as much wealth as the bottom 50% of the whole world's population or whatever. And it seems to be getting worse from what I understand. Recently, I think Elon Musk, who is now the richest guy in the world, I think he's worth about 300 billion or something, has got into sort of a pissing match with Bernie Sanders because Bernie wants to even things out more and Musk has given him a hard time. And what are your thoughts about where the world is going? 
I read an article just yesterday, I think, from uh, Ray Dalio, who is the most successful hedge fund guy and, you know, super wealthy and all. And he's worried that we're going to have civil war because of wealth inequity and various other problems that political polarization and everything. He he thinks we're going to actually have a fighting war. Do you think on a global scale like that? And what would you see as an kind of more ideal way of arranging society for the betterment of all? Well, you know, this is something, of course, I've thought a lot about. You look at so many causes and you ask, you know, in this complex web, in this volatile web, in this deeply interconnected web, what are the sort of acupuncture points where you do a small thing and it kind of creates a cascading ripple effect? I think one of the big things that I think about, I'm an engineer by trade. I still do a lot of coding every single day. And one of the things that I think a lot about that service space thinks a lot about, and in fact, in the pandemic, one of the things that has emerged in service space is a learning platform. We call them service space pods. But you look at what Mark Zuckerberg recently laid out as his vision of a metaverse, which is essentially, we had YouTube algorithms telling us, oh, well, you will also like, and then from there we go to Netflix binging and from Netflix binging now, we're just going to a whole world where we're just going to be immersed in this. And you say, well, what are the motivations that are driving people to this? And I think what's actually happening is that transactional mentality is actually fracturing our social fabric. And to me, that lever of going from me to me connections to creating contexts where you have a more of a we to we connection. You look at a karma kitchen, which, or in any restaurant, it can have a me to me orientation, but you can also reframe it as something much deeper. You can go into a home and you can have a me to me orientation, but it can also be an awakened circle. And so similarly, I think more even than the offline, I think the questions that we now have to ask, especially around the inequities and not just the inequities, the cascading compounding problems that inequity creates is you have to ask what are going to be the technological interventions that create a space that sort of have this through line. Even if I come in as a me, there is a through line for me to go from me to we and from we to us. And I just don't think that Facebook or Google or Netflix, they're, they're not thinking about that. That's not in their parlance. So they're looking and saying, oh, this me to me is so dissatisfying. It's so polarizing. There's so much inequity. There's the haves and have nots. And so what should we do? Let's escape. Let's create something on Mars or let's create something in a virtual world. And that's one way of shrinking. Another way is to say, hey, we have the capacity to take an internal U-turn. And there are many ways to take that internal U-turn, expand into a deeper awareness. But I think the core question as designers, as service-hearted people, is not like the recipe, the one recipe that's going to help everyone take a U-turn, right? Like, what is the compassion pill? They're working on that, by the way. It's not that, but it's more about what are the spaces, offline and online and hybrid spaces, in which you architect the interactions in such a way that it allows for a field of transformation to be possible. And I think the way in which we are creating spaces at scale in the world today, especially with technology, is actually going to only deepen 
the inequity. And you're like, how can it deepen from eight men in the world owning more wealth than the bottom 3.5 billion, right? You're like, that's already crazy. But I'm with Yuval Noah Harari, who speaks about this. And he says, you know, with the upcoming centralization and even the pandemic and what it has done, it's going to actually even deepen the inequity. And so I think for me, this is a very pressing question. If you're looking at the world through a lens of service and you say, well, where in this giant field should I intervene? To me, the question would be, if you can move from transaction, which is one-dimensional, to something that is a little bit more relational, so that it creates a field of trust, so that transformation may arise by nature's propensity, not by the propensity of your intervention. That, to me, feels like a very significant thing. Even if you're doing this interview, if we can make it more relational to me, it would actually be adding break onto this giant momentum that is shrinking our awareness, shrinking the depth of our relationships into shallower and shallower connections, and then to more and more of an escape and more and more of a sort of building layers of delusion on top of uh, delusion. I feel like taking that U-turn starts with turning transaction into relationship and into giver kind of relationships. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And at times it sounded kind of pessimistic. It's like this, that, and the other thing is, you know, Elon Musk thinks he's going to save us by populating Mars and Zuckerberg thinks that Meta is, we're kind of fiddling while Rome burns in a way. And, you know, I think that climate change, if it goes as it might, could make these migrations of people that are happening right now, which are very difficult to seem like a minor trickle because it could turn into hundreds of millions of people having to migrate in the midst of drought and famine and war and everything else. So, I mean, talk about pessimistic, but I always think about this and I think about what can I do for one? I've always felt since my twenties or earlier that the more fundamental level at which we can function, the more leverage we'll have. And the most fundamental thing is consciousness. And if we can really do something on that level, it could save the day. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do things on manifest levels as well, which you're a beautiful exemplar of, but that foundation has to be there. And that's kind of what we started this conversation with, actually, was you know the importance of grounding ourselves in that deeper dimension or as the Gita says, established in yoga, perform action. And I'm just hoping that what appears to be some kind of a spiritual epidemic around the world ends up being the saving grace such that there there will indeed be a global awakening and somehow all these intractable problems will find solutions. Well, there are two things that give me hope. To me, I don't see it as a pessimistic or an optimistic thing. I see it as a part of a continuum. I have this one slide in one of my talks where it shows an infinity sign. And on one side, there's suffering. On the other side, there's compassion. That actually, Buddha's first noble truth was there is suffering, but it doesn't stop there. So I think it's one is that there is suffering. And the other is that we actually have a wish not only to come out of that suffering, but to help others come out of that suffering. And that's what compassion is. And so in times of suffering, it's not to deny that suffering. It's actually to hold it in a larger context of great compassion. So many sages have come and gone and suffering has existed, but 
there has been an incredible response. Like actually, even post-pandemic, we started a portal called Coronavirus. It was kind of a play on Corona virus. And it's like, oh, how is, you know, how can it create a contagion of compassion? Because there was suffering. There's no denying that. And it was distributed unequally. You know, it's unfair. And at the same time, there were also so many people just deeply responding with great compassion people giving up their oxygen masks and people, I was really touched by this story of these two Sikh brothers. I don't know if you're familiar, they never shave or cut their hair. And these guys are like, what's more important serving? And they said, because of the coronavirus, you can't be a doctor and go to the front lines if you have facial hair at that time. And these guys shaved, breaking one of their precepts because they said service was more important. And there were so many examples and there continue to be. So I think that's the question that I hold is, how can I build a bigger heart? How can I respond to the world with more love? Yeah, that's good. I think what you're doing is amazing. And, you know, I guess the thought that just occurred to me then is, if there is some kind of upwelling of consciousness taking place, you're kind of an avant-garde character in a way. You're an example of what could possibly become very widespread. And if it did, it would be the kind of transformations you've been seeing in very specific places where you've been able to work could become commonplace throughout the world. I really hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. I mean, that's why you spend 98% of your waking hours trying to be in service and, and, yeah. and you do those things. But the second thing that inspires me is also to just know that this change is nonlinear, that we are sort of stuck in our linear minds and we think, oh, this, then this, then this, then this. That's the kind of thinking that creates the problem. And I yeah. think life happens in a very nonlinear way. You do something small and you never know. It creates this incredible ripple effect that ends up having remarkable change in the world. And you don't know. Maybe I'm the instrument. Maybe you're the instrument. Maybe we create a domino effect that goes out and does something else. And you have to trust in that deeper guidance. Fortunately, it's a great thing that it's not resting on the shoulders of our ego. Because if it were up to just us, man, that would be very problematic and that would be too heavy and I would sink from that. But I think we can all do our little part. And I always say, go out and do a small act of love right now. And if you can do that, you're contributing to that U-turn from the narrow transactional interactions to something that's much more expansive. And yeah. you're, you're making a statement for that. And even that small act, it matters. It counts. Because in the larger web of things, we are all very, very deeply interconnected. And so I think we can hold the suffering in the world with that kind of a heart, which I think brings a certain kind of uh, joy, despite being in the mud of the world. You know, the story of Krishna holding up the mountain and to protect the villagers and the villagers think, oh, you know, it's a pretty heavy mountain. I better help. And they get a stick and then all the, they're holding, helping him hold the mountain with their little sticks. That's us doing our little things, but God is really running the show. There was a great story. I met this kid one time and I asked him, it was actually a very profound encounter. We were at a retreat and he dips into my plate. I did a moment of silence. And right as I opened my eyes, he dips into my plate and he feeds me the first bite. I was shocked. I mean, no one had ever done that to me, right? Like, I mean, what do you mean? It's like, I'm going to eat my own food, right? So I said, oh, I took it. And then I kind of looked confused. And he looks at me and he says, he explained and he says, well, you were doing a prayer 
And I just had this feeling that I want to be a part of that prayer. And what better way than to be of service? So I offered you the first bite. And I was like, wow. I asked him, I said, who are you and what do you do? And he says, whenever people ask me who I am and what I do, I tell them, and this is like a teenager. He says, I tell them the story of a little sparrow. And I said, what's the story of the sparrow? He says, well, there was a sparrow that heard that the world is coming down. So it turned its back and looked up at the world and put its feet up at the sky. And somebody looks at him and says, hey, little sparrow, what are you doing? And he says, I'm doing my little bit to keep the sky up because I've heard it's falling. It's about being responsible, but it's also about being humble. It's also about a very different space from which you are offering. And maybe it does. Ramayan and all of it, like you have all the Indian scriptures where it's, it's not just about the mythical characters. It's also about those little squirrels that help build the bridge for Ram. Right. Um, in our Superman world, we want to be the Superman. We want to be the front headlines, but there's absolutely nothing wrong with being the squirrels. And in fact, not only nothing wrong, it is absolutely just as sacred as anything else. And so I think even the ordinary, the most smallest, the most mundane can be a gateway to the absolutely most divine. And that to me, it gives, it brings a smile to my face, even as I hold so much in the world. Sweet. One time my wife and I were seeing Amma. It was our anniversary. We told her it was our anniversary. And so she gave us each a chocolate. And I think we both started to put it in our own mouths. And, and she said, no, no, you put it in each other's mouths. And then she told us this story about the the devas and the asuras for some reason had their arms with a splint on them so they couldn't bend at the elbow. I guess the asuras starved to death because they couldn't feed themselves, but the devas fed each other. With their arms straight, they were able to just feed each other. And so they lived. <laughs> That's a great story. Somebody asked a question, and this will we'll have to wrap it up pretty much after this, but um, this is from Mark Peters in Santa Clara. And um, I don't know what he's referring to, but uh, presumably you do. Can you share a story of your encounters with Kanti Kaka, who referred to death as his noble friend and whose favorite song asserted that life is a game? <laughs> yeah, actually, he's a remarkable sculptor. He passed away a few years ago, and he would sing this song called we come crying, crying, we go laughing, laughing, life is a game, life is a game. He embodied this spirit. So I think even in Times Square, he would make sculptures of lots of saints and, and even Gandhi. One of his sculpture of Gandhi is actually in Times Square. But we asked him a question, you know, we would ask him, we said, Gandhi Kaka, how do you know that a painting is complete? Or a piece of art, in his case, a sculpture. How do you know that it's complete? And he says, when I know I haven't done it. Nice. So he never actually signed any of his pieces of art. He lived very simply, very humbly. Some of the most incredible saints alive during his time would end up going into his little workshop. We had the honor of interacting with him on various occasions. And he would sing and he, he wasn't a singer. He, there was nothing fancy about it. But there was the sense that, yeah, we come crying, crying. We go laughing, laughing. Life is a game. There was this sense of that I have to do my bit and I'm going to do it with great love. And I don't need to create schemes on top of that. That's enough. That's my calling. And so I feel there's a sense of contentment. There's a sense of peace. And actually, I feel like so many of the deepest revolutionary possibilities that 
are created in the world are actually those that emanate from this sense of arriving, from the sense of deep peace, from the sense of, okay, I embrace all as is, and yet I will respond with great compassion. There's a quote, uh, actually, it's on my desk. Brother David Steindl Rost, I don't know if you know him, but I know of uh, him, yeah. He's a remarkable human being. And he, at one point, he had invited like six, seven of us to a dialogue on compassion. And so for a week, we were all dialoguing in compassion. And at the end of it, he gave me this beautiful little card. And on it, there's a quote. He says it's by R.S. Thomas, but others have told me it's not. But it says, whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Nothing else but this. And coming from him, because he, he sat down one time to meditate and just spontaneously for an unspecified amount of time. And it was 14 years later that he stopped meditating. You know, so this is that kind of a guy. You and mean he sat in one single meditation sitting for 14 years? Not one single one, but he basically oh. stayed in silence. He didn't do anything else. I had asked him a question. I said, Brother David, how do you decide when to stop meditating? He said, well, sometimes it's a couple of minutes, sometimes it's a couple of hours, sometimes it's a couple of days. And one time I kind of sat and, uh, you know, I just felt like continuing for 14 years. That's great. And, and so here is that kind of a guy and he was a Benedictine monk. And for him to say, well, whatever happens, whatever what is, is, is what I want. Nothing else but this. And to me, when I see connecting it back to Kantikaka and, and the piece of work, a piece of art that he creates in the world, which I think we ultimately were all creating a little bit of art through our action. It came from this space of this is where I'm at and I'm going to shine my little corner of the world. There is something very powerful about that, which I find to be way more inspiring personally for me than to read headlines of people that have done X amount or Y amount of things, you know, like to me, I, I really bow down in reverence um, to the everyday heroes that do their small acts with great love. I think that's the only thing that has ever changed the world. Beautiful. Well, it's tempting to make this a 14 year long interview because it's so much fun talking to you, but we better end it up at this point. So I'll put a page up on thatgap.com that links to as many of these specific little things as possible because I, I want to make sure that nobody misses any of them. So many interesting things that you have been involved with and that people can avail themselves of. I want to give a shout out to James O'D, whom I interviewed some years ago, who recommended that we invite you for an interview. I really appreciate that, James. And I really appreciate everything you're doing, Nippon, and um, appreciate everybody watching this interview. We're all in this together, as the saying goes. We're all each holding up our, our stick. And, uh, you know, it's it's just a joy to um, to have met you and to have interacted. I hope we can stay in touch. Absolutely. Thank you for holding not just this conversation, but so many conversations I personally know people who have been very touched by this interview or that interview, and, and it just kind of creates a wonderful ripple effect. And so I feel grateful to have uh, contributed my little bit with the sparrow looking up and uh, saying, hey, man, who knows where it kind of leads. I hope to be a brother in service to anyone who wants to engage in this way and certainly to you, Rick. So thank you for hosting me here. 
Thank you. And again, thanks to those who've been listening or watching. And we will see you for the next one. If you'd like to see what we've got scheduled, there's an upcoming interviews page on batgap.com where you can see um, who's coming up. I hope to meet you again in person one of these days if we ever come out of this um, foxhole that we're, we've been huddling in. <laughs> for sure. For I used sure. to go out to the SAN conference every year in San Jose, but um, they haven't had it for a few years because of the pandemic. Yeah, that's very close to where I'm at. I'm in Northern California. Thank you very much. All right. Take care.